May the words of my mouth and meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. In what was maybe the um, second or third year after my ordination, um, I received a call from a friend of mine who was also um, a clergyman. And he says to me, um, Joe, uh, I have a favor to ask you. This is a, um, uh, a very important favor, uh, and it's, it's unsettling in, in ways, but I, I just need you to, to do something for me. And so I said to George, of course, I'll do anything. What, what, what can I do for you? And he said, well, the first thing you need to know is that I'm resigning from the ministry today. And I said, oh, that is so sad. You know, it broke my heart. And, uh, and I said, do you want to talk about that? He said, I do, but not right now. I need to ask you a favor. This was on a Thursday. He said, on Saturday, I have a wedding scheduled, and I need you to perform this wedding. I said, of course, I'm happy to do that. Um, I assume there's a rehearsal Friday, right? Yes, a rehearsal Friday. Thursday, I find out that I have a wedding rehearsal on Friday and a wedding on Saturday. It's not the biggest emergency in the world, but it wasn't something I was at all prepared to do, you know. So um, I said, okay, I'll happily do that. And and later on, I met with George, and we talked, and... and, um, and you know, what, for what it's worth, you know, he, he kind of was in a, a better place and working towards um, being a, a healthier person. But I, I met with this couple then on Friday at their wedding rehearsal. It, George had informed them that I would be performing the wedding. I did, uh, and I, I met with them, and they were a delightful young couple. Um, and so we go through the rehearsal, and everything is, goes well, and Saturday is the wedding. And the wedding goes off without a hitch. It was as if... You know, it was just a smooth sailing, everything. Um, and, uh, and it went really, really well, right up to the point where I said, it is my privilege to introduce to you for the very first time, Mr. and Mrs. <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. And, and I think the guy says, you know, Johnson. I'm like, no, that's not it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, it is it. Yes, Mr. and Mrs. And, you know, it was a good laugh. Everybody had at my expense. Um, the uh, the reception was quite interesting, too, uh, after that, because um, everybody had stopped by and tell me what a great job I did and how they would never forget this wedding, you know. Uh, <laughs> sometimes there are these embarrassing situations you just can't get away from, you know. You, you're right in the middle, the center of attention, and um, and you just fall flat on your face, and you know what it's like. You've been there yourself. Jesus, in the gospel, since since uh, Luke 9.51, Luke says, And Jesus set his face steadfastly to Jerusalem. He's been moving to Jerusalem, going intentionally to Jerusalem. Even says, at the just before that passage, he says, It's necessary for the Son of Man to um, be rejected by the chief priests and elders and be killed and on the third day rise again. And then shortly after that, you know, just a few verses after, Luke says, And Jesus set his face steadfastly toward Jerusalem. From Luke 9.51 up to chapter 20, we have Jesus traveling. He's on his way from northern parts of Galilee to Jerusalem. And everything that happens between Luke 9.51 and chapter 20 is Jesus en route to Jerusalem. And chapter 20, he arrives in the city. You've perhaps heard this story. It's in all four Gospels. What does Jesus do when he gets to the city? He goes to the temple and there discovers people who are exchanging currency 
for sacrificial animals. The people who controlled the temple, they are called the Sadducees. They are the the ruling priestly aristocracy in Jerusalem. There's not very many of them. There are very few, small number, but they're very rich and very powerful. And they have a system set up. You had to go to Jerusalem to offer a sacrifice. It had to be in the temple. It had to be um, certified by a priest. And so the Sadducees had these pre-certified animals that you could buy in the temple. You wouldn't have to, you know, bring your lamb 200 miles to, to Jerusalem. You could wait till you got there and buy one. It was a very convenient kind of system. But they wouldn't take regular Roman currency. You couldn't buy this animal with Roman currency with an image of Caesar on it proclaiming himself God. So they had a special temple currency. Only good in the temple. It's like monopoly money. It, was, it worked nowhere else but in these courts of the temple. And what you did was you go to a money changer who would take your Roman currency and give you temple currency. The Sadducees would keep the Roman currency and use it to buy bread and whatever else they would want, you know, once they got out of the temple. But they would use this temple currency then to buy the animals. And here's the thing. The exchange rate was ridiculous. You know, three and four to one. So what they were doing, they they were skimming money through the exchange and then selling animals at twice the price. So it was like three and four and five times. the. And Jesus comes to Jerusalem and he sees this happening and this is why he is so enraged. And he begins turning over the, t- the tables, you remember? The tables of the money changers. Now imagine you're a Sadducee. And in comes this peasant preacher, self-proclaimed. He's not official anything. He has no ordination certificate. He has no, he has no credentials. He has no education. And here he is embarrassing you in front of everybody. You know what happens when you hit the empire? <laughs> the empire strikes back, doesn't it? I mean, it comes back with a vengeance. It's going to, it, this is what happens when you, when you attack the empire. The empire strikes back. And all you Star Wars people are like, oh, yes, I, I've seen this one. Yeah, the, the empire strikes. That's what happens in, in our gospel lesson today. The empire is striking back. Some Sadducees uh, get Jesus off to the side. Uh, just as a little note, um, the Sadducees believe only in the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the Pentateuch, uh, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's their entire Bible. None of the prophets, none of the, um, of the teachings of, of other rabbinic leaders. They're, they're only interested in the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. And they don't believe in things like angels. They don't believe that any such thing as angels exist. They don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. Uh, a little shorthand, kind of cheesy way to remember this, if you want to kind of differentiate between Pharisees and Sadducees. Pharisees believe in angels and in the resurrection, and the Sadducees do not. That's why they're sad, you see. And it's so cheesy, isn't it? <laughs> but you'll remember it. That's why they're, yeah, so they're, they're, here's the thing about Sadducees. They're wealthy, they're powerful, and they don't believe in life after death. Which is very convenient because it doesn't really matter what you do in this life because there's no judgment in the life to come. In fact, the only real judgment is if you're wealthy and powerful, you must be blessed by God. That's their, their formula. And they're wealthy and they're powerful. Therefore, they must be blessed by God. And they, Jesus comes in and, and he's preaching about angels and he, and, he, and he talks about resurrection. 
and he embarrasses them publicly. And so they pull him aside and they say, hey, we have this little, uh, little thought experiment for you. You know this rule about Leverite marriage? And Leverite marriage goes like this. If, if, a, if a couple are married and, and there are no children from that marriage and the, the husband dies, it is the responsibility of his brother to marry this woman and to raise up children for his brother's name so that his brother's name will continue on. And so they say, well, this is, a, this is in, the, in the law. It's in the Torah. Moses told us to do this. Now, here's the situation. A man and woman get married and they have no children. The man has six other brothers. And so the second one marries this woman, and they have no children. And the third one marries, and have all the way through the seventh. The seventh marries her, and they still have no children, and he dies. All seven brothers have married this woman. All seven brothers have died. No children have been produced. Tell me, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? This, they think, has Jesus stumped. He won't know what to say. And their point, of course, is to do two things. First of all, to embarrass him. They seek to embarrass Jesus publicly. You do, you, how could you answer this question? And second of all, to discredit him. If you embarrass him and discredit him, then people won't listen to him and we can just be done with this fellow, get rid of him. There's a couple uh, insinuations in this, this thing. First of all, that, um, that people are married in the resurrection. The second of all is that who would want this woman? This is the insinuation, right? They actually say all seven had her, as if she was a possession to be owned. All seven had her. Now whose will she be? Jesus responds, and when he does, he responds this way. First of all, you're ignorant. You don't even understand the Bible. You don't even understand the very small parts of the Bible that you say you believe in. Take, for instance, Moses at the burning bush. No bigger story in ancient Israelite thinking than Moses at the burning bush. God actually communicates with Moses. And what does God say? I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus says, if God is the God of these people, how could he be the God of the dead? No, he's the God of the living, and they're all alive to him at the time he spoke to Moses. And the Sadducees, you should be embarrassed. You should be embarrassed because of your lack of knowledge. And you should be embarrassed about the way that you talk about people being possessions. The resurrection from the dead is the Christian hope. I don't know that many of us think about that. Um, you go to Grandma's funeral, and, um, and you know, little Johnny says, um, where's Grandma? And you say, well, Grandma's in heaven. Uh, you know, heaven, disembodied spirit, fly away up to heaven. This is, this is the message that most people think, that, that we live and die and go to heaven. That is not the Christian message. That's not, the, that's not the, the message that Jesus preached. He preached resurrection from the dead. Bodily resurrection. Think about Jesus and the, the tomb, Easter Sunday morning. Is the tomb, is there a body still in the tomb? Is it just his spirit up walking around? No, they find a body missing. Jesus preaches the resurrection from the dead, bodily resurrection. Now, how does that happen if, you know, you're um, cremated or, you know, uh, left it in sea? or I don't know. But I think the God who brought everything together can rematerialize a body from ashes or from the sea. I, I think he's, he's able to handle just that little bit. But that is the hope. We'll say it in just a few minutes. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. I believe... In the, in the resurrection of the dead. Resurrection. 
bodily resurrected, not disembodied spirits. Yes, there's a time. There's a time between the general resur- between one's death and the general resurrection. There's going to be a time in the future where all the dead will be raised, bodily raised. And if someone dies before that time, there's a time where they are in disembodied spirit, where they're with, with Abraham in paradise, as Jesus says in, in Luke 16. So there's this period, but ter- period between uh, one's death and the general resurrection where they are a disembodied spirit, but that's not the final hope. The final hope is bodily resurrection. I used to live in Kentucky, and, and they, would, they would sing um, these gospel songs, uh, most of which, uh, if you sang them with a banjo and a mandolin, um, it sounded really good. You know, they were fantastic. Um, and I remember one Sunday, you know, they're singing this favorite one um, in, in Kentucky, I'll Fly Away. Do you know this gospel song? I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away. When I die, hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away. And I'm singing it with um, with gusto, not with very good tone, but uh, you know, singing it lustily, as uh, as John Wesley said. And um, and I realize this is not good theology. This is bad theology. This is Gnostic theology. I'll fly away. The world will be destroyed, and I'll be safe, disembodied spirit, off somewhere, floating in the air. That is not the Christian hope. A new heaven, a new earth. A resurrected body, that is the Christian hope. And Jesus points this out to the the Sadducees, which brings up a big deal. And this is is the really big deal. Jesus makes a contrast between this age and the age to come. He said, in this age, people marry and are given in marriage. But in the age to come, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Neither give themselves over to marriage, which is actually what he says. It's a middle verb in Greek. They will neither marry nor give themselves in marriage. But they'll rather be like the angels. This is a little dig at the Sadducees. They'll be like the angels. Ooh, I don't even believe in angels. Yeah, they'll be like the angels. They'll be children of God. They'll be children of God. And I know this is, this is difficult because, you know, people have lost spouses and they think, well, will I know my spouse or will my spouse know me? Yes, I think, I think you will, but not in a, not in a marital situation, in a true loving sister, brother, part of the family of God way. Aquinas says that, that we, we only know in part, and when we know perfectly, then we'll understand everything. It's, it's, it's our, our lack of knowledge that causes us distress. This is the Christian hope, bodily resurrection. Well, if we have this difference between this present age and the age to come, the question is, how then should we live? Should we live like the Sadducees, who thought that money and power and control were the only things that mattered? Or should we live like Jesus says, let me read to you from from Luke's Gospel earlier, chapter 6, if if my eyes will, will... cooperate, and they almost never do. Um, in, in chapter 6 of Luke's Gospel, he says this. Oh, wrong page. Um, Love your enemies. Do good. Lend. Expect nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be called children of the Most High. See, the apposition is between this age and the age to come. If we look forward to the age to come, then we should live like it in this present age. 
That's what Jesus is saying to the Sadducees. Um, some years ago, many of you were here then, um, Abby and I celebrated 25 years of marital bliss. We'd been married 30 years by then, but it was 25 of it. It was really, no, I'm joking. 25-year wedding anniversary. Now, most of you know that I'm pretty daft about many things, you know. I'm just not the sharpest knife in the drawer. Um, but even I know that 25 years is a pretty significant wedding anniversary, right? And, and so I had planned for at least weeks, probably months, about this, how do we celebrate it right? And so I plan a party, invitations, you know, um, champagne, good food, bourbon, everything that you need for the, a proper celebration, um, cake, everything, um, even bought new clothes, you know, for me and Abby. And so she comes home from work on a Friday, and I say, we're going out to dinner, and we're going to get dressed up, and I've got a bow tie on, and she's like, wow, we really are going to get dressed up. And, um, and you know, she has this new silver dress, and she gets on it, and it looks perfect. I'm like, oh, thank God. And, and then we, uh, we, we go, and we get in the car, and, um, you know, we're all, we're all cleaned up and, and dressed up, and, and so I start heading out of town. You know, going the opposite direction because the party was here at the church. And, and uh, we're going the opposite direction out of town. And I pull over and I said, okay, I, I want this restaurant. It's a really special place. I want it to be a surprise. And so you have to put on this. And I gave her a blindfold, you know, like you wear at bed at night, you know. And, and, and she thinks it's silly, but, you know, goes along with it. What can you do? You know, puts it on and, and, and we drive here. And Peter took some great pictures. I mean, fantastic photographs. And my favorite one is when I parked on the side door. I didn't even come to the front door because I was afraid she might recognize the sounds or something. I bring her in the side door, you know, up steps and whatever that were unusual. And we walk around the corner and hear all of our friends and our boys. They were, they were scattered like they all are all the time. They were all together in one place, which almost never happens. And here they are, all four of them and, and, and some friends we hadn't seen. And we walk in and pull off the blinder and there is Pete, a great photograph. Total surprise. I thought we were going to have a great dinner. And it was so much better. I think that's what the resurrection is like so many more times unfolded. We have an idea. We think we know what's waiting for us at the end. Streets of gold, harps, clouds. I don't know. Whatever you think might be up there. Baseball. Indians' victories. You know, things that we think might happen on the other side. And it's so much smaller. It's so much less significant. There is so much more waiting for us than we could ever ask or even imagine. That's why it's important that we live like that now. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, 